Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Patrick Worms onto the show. He is a policy advisor for World Agroforestry and the president of the European Agroforestry Federation. We discussed together agroforestry, but from a policy perspective to understand how we can convince decision makers and what type of funding is needed to scale agroforestry. Although much of the conversation is focused on Europe, Patrick gives some insights that will be of great interest to anyone who wants to convince key players of the opportunity that agroforestry represents. Patrick is an amazing speaker and you will find that this interview is not only highly informative, but also very entertaining and full of punchlines. Enjoy. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, you know, you're a bit of an unusual guest, but a bit different from the the farmers we usually um, interview. So why don't you just tell us who you are and uh, what you do in life? Thank you, Etienne. Well, um, I'm Patrick Worms. I'm a German citizen who lives in Belgium. And uh, here I represent World Agroforestry, which is a research institution headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya, um, where I am the senior science policy advisor. Um, I'm also the president of the European Agroforestry Federation. I'm now in my second term and uh, the board will be renewed in New Orleans. So uh, I'm looking forward to passing the baton on to somebody else at the European Agroforestry Conference, which will be happening this May uh, in Sardinia in Italy. And how did you first get involved with agroforestry? Well, 12 years ago, I was helping a friend organize what was the United Arab Emirates' very first uh, global conference devoted to environmental issues, a conference called Eye on Earth. And there I listened to a fascinating presentation by Professor Dennis Garrity, whom some of your uh, audience will know. Uh, he was Director General of World Agroforestry at the time. And Dennis made a presentation that explained the wonderful um, uh, capabilities and uh, an impact of mixing crops with trees. And as a biologist, because I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a geneticist, uh, that was immediately obvious to me. The other thing that was obvious to me is that even though I spent all of my career dealing with environmental issues, I had never even heard the word agroforestry before Dennis mentioned it. So I thought these guys needed some help. Um, at the time, I just sold my own lobbying company here in Brussels, so I was flush, not enough to stop working for the rest of my life, but enough not to have to worry about the, my income for a few months. And so I started lobbying for agroforestry here in Brussels, not realizing what it was really. Within a few months, I realized I really needed to learn more. So I got on a flight to Nairobi, told my wife I'd be there for a couple of weeks. I ended up staying a couple of months. Dennis took me down to Zambia and to Malawi to uh, get a better Zimbabwe uh, to get a better understanding of what this agroforestry stuff is and at the end of that it was agreed that it would be useful if I carried on working with them but I couldn't carry on doing it for free forever and so they signed a contract with me and that was 11 years ago so that's how I got into agroforestry I was an environmentally concerned 
individual who had been doing environmental remediation projects, mostly in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, for decades, who understood a little bit about lobbying, about corporate lobbying and about government lobbying, and uh, who was fascinated by what was, what struck me at the time and still remains, an absolutely extraordinary way of managing landscapes for both human ends and ecosystemic ends. And what element really, you know, it, it's interesting to hear your journey going from lobbyist to all of a sudden getting this uh, sudden interest for agroforestry. What what elements specifically kind of appealed to you? Uh, were they on the purely ecological level or did you also see social benefits? I mean, what caught your eye? All, all of the above. What really the, the first thing that struck me was the sheer elegance of uh, um, a system that rotates nutrients, gases, and water in a far more efficient way across its components than a monocrop system ever could, simply because you have uh, uh, more roots, they go deeper, you have a bigger crown, so you have bigger ecosystemic effects. The second thing that, that struck me, and that was right at the same time, because Dennis was speaking about agroforestry in the West African Sahelian context, was the extraordinary impact this had on social and economic benefits, because these are environments in which I mean, yeah, if you have oodles of capital, if you're a millionaire, you can sink a well and you can use diesel and you can use pesticides and fertilizers and all the rest of it. And you can grow stuff in the Sahel. But local farmers don't operate like that. They're too poor. Uh, and in that environment, unless you have trees, it's really difficult to grow anything at all. The trees provide you with fertility, with protection against drought, with protection against storms, etc., 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 etc. So right from the start, I had this this vision of a system that was benefiting both the farmers and the people living on a piece of land and the wider community. And by wider community, I don't mean the wider human community. I mean the wider community of life, the animals, the plants, the microbiome, etc. i.e. all the bits and pieces that we don't normally think about, but that make the difference between a living and a dead planet. Tell us a bit more about your job today uh, at the World Agroforestry. Um, what do your daily tasks look like? My daily tasks are really to do two things. First is to influence policy. Um, and influencing policy means ensuring that development funding, for example, goes more into an agroecological direction than into um, an uh, uh, intensive agricultural direction. Uh, it means trying to influence the way that certain strategic documents uh, are being drafted or uh, are, are being prepared. So, for example, you can see the imprimatur of the work that we do in the European Union's biodiversity strategy, the European Union's forestry strategy, or the European Union's farm to fork strategies, all of which mention agroforestry as a pretty good way of managing landscapes. Um, we try to integrate agroforestry into different bits of policy whenever we can. So, for example, the Director General for Climate at the European Commission has identified carbon farming as something we need to do. Um, in order to get to grips with the carbon greed we all have um, and to identify the key interventions within carbon farming. They commission some consultants, we work with them, and the result is peatland rewetting and agroforestry. So it doesn't matter which way you look at this, whether you look at it from the perspective of productivity, whether you look at it from the perspective of resilience, whether you look at it from the perspective of social issues, whether you look at it from the perspective of biodiversity, or whether you look at it from the perspective of climate, the agroforestry always comes back as a pretty good option. What are your tools to convince people about agroforestry? What are the decision makers looking for? And uh, you know, how can you push forward this agenda? A story. Hmm. A story backed by good scientific evidence. 
you're not going to get anywhere if all you do is send people scientific papers. And World Agroforestry is an institution that does research so that publishes scientific papers. I think by now we have over 7,000 peer-reviewed papers to our name. Um, but papers don't change policy. What does change policy is the ability to tell a story built on those papers so that people can envision a different future from the, um, the, the current trend that they are on. Policymakers want to make the world a better place within the regulatory constraints within they have to operate. They're bureaucrats and bureaucrats have to operate within the rules that other bureaucrats have prepared. But within those rules, they want to chivy the rest of us in the right direction. So they are going to be encouraging the adoption of agroforestry if they can see the evidence that agroforestry works. But in order for them to sit down and spend an hour or two going through papers to um, convince themselves that agroforestry works, you need to give them an opening. You need to give them the possibility of doing so. And you do that through stories. And that means that you give them visions. It's images, it's simple graphs, it's photographs, it's podcasts, it's, it's presentations, it's, it's simple things, things that make them go, hey, what is this agroforestry stuff? Why is it so important? In other words, things that make people react in much the way that I reacted to Dennis Garrity's presentation in Abu Dhabi all these years ago. Dennis is also very good at telling stories. And what always uh, struck me is that um, what always, you know, I found very powerful is that both agroforestry, but more widely regenerative agriculture have a amazing story to tell. Right. And most yeah. of us that got into it were uh, taken into that story and through emotion rather than facts. So totally understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's important to understand that we didn't stay with it with the regenerative agriculture story or the agroforestry story or the agroecology story because of the emotions. We stayed with it because the facts corroborated our emotions. We looked at it and we thought, hey, this sounds great. This is wonderful. This is a way in which we can save the planet. But then the next reaction is, does it actually work or am I just being taken for a ride? And that's when you go through the books, when you go through the papers, when you talk to people who are doing it, and when you begin to understand more and more what it can and what it cannot do. And that reinforces the belief, if you like. It reinforces the story. And that is why regenerative agriculture is growing, despite the fact that we have practically no money for marketing, unlike the agrochemical industry, which this year is reckoned to be spending about $245 billion dollars on, um, uh, 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 sorry, to have a, a revenue of about $245 billion outside of China. So that's just the rest of the world. Um, and we don't have, and, and, and of course, they operate, these companies operate like pharma companies, which means about 40% of their revenue goes into marketing, um, uh, distribution, etc., rather than research. And uh, we don't have that resource. The only thing we have is a better story. But that better story is convincing more and more farmers. So, you know, that's your day job. <laughs> and as a president of URAF, do you do similar missions then? Or how does that compare? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 very, it's a very similar mission. And uh, my, my bosses in Nairobi um, understand that I'm pursuing their objective as well when I am uh, 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 worrying about European agroforestry. So uh, at URAF, we really try to do two things. First, we try to encourage Europe's agroforesters and the membership is, I guess, about two-thirds academic, one-third farmers, to get better at talking about agroforestry in their own national contexts. That means we have regular monthly meetings where we exchange information, where we see what's happening in different countries, etc. The second thing that we try to do is to help them win research contracts. Two-thirds are academics. Academics run from one grant to another. It's a pretty hard life 
Um, I mean, farmers and academics are probably the two job descriptions that have the hardest life in Europe at the moment, and both of them are in Europe. So what we're trying to do is to put in place these, um, these consortia, uh, these groupings of universities and practitioners and farms, etc., that together want to research some aspect of agroforestry and win some funding, usually at the European level from, uh, from DG Research. Um, so those are the two main things that we do. The third thing that we do is, of course, what I've already talked about, the, the, the lobbying side, the trying to influence policy. And that's fiendishly hard because you can convince some bureaucrats in Brussels to a story. But when the decision making is distributed across all the member states of the European Union, suddenly it becomes much, much harder. And that was the flaw in the farm to fork strategy. The farm to fork strategy says all the right things about agroforestry. But the farm to fork strategy asks for the member states to create their own strategic plans because they know better what works in their local context, which is, of course, true, but at the same time, deeply flawed because the ministries of agriculture inside these member states are the main point of contact for the agrochemical industry across Europe. That's where the decisions are taken about what to authorize, what not to authorize, what to sell, how to sell it, how to buy, where the subsidies go, etc., etc. So, and, and there we have no voice or very, very little voice since we don't have lobbyists in every capital of the European Union. And so the strategic plans that came back from, the, um, uh, uh, from those capitals are by and large extremely discouraging. Documents of several thousand pages that mention agroforestry once or twice. And uh, that's why, and I'm sure that many of your listeners know this, that's why the fear now is that under the new common agricultural policy and its strategic plans, we're going to actually take a step back in agroecological terms rather than a step forward. And that is now being encouraged by the fact that the agrochemical industry is using the excuse of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine to try to encourage Europe to double down on more fertilizers, more pesticides, more diesel and less ecological bullshit. And so what do you see in the new cap policy that actually takes things backwards rather than forwards? Not in the policy at European level. Um, it's more what's coming back from member states in, the, uh, in, in terms of the strategic plans. You could say that the one thing that's taking things backwards at the European level is the fact that the bureaucrats who develop the farm to fork strategy do not seem to have realized that by giving so much freedom back to the member states, that some of the things that they wanted to happen on the agroecological front in Brussels, since it isn't a mandate, but just one option amongst many, was going to get abandoned. They may not have fully realized that this is what was going to happen. And that is what has happened. In most states, um, the measures to promote agroforestry are laughable. In the Czech Republic, for example, which under its previous Ministry of Agriculture, um, was actually quite pro-agroforestry. You now have a proposal where only 0.02% of the agricultural surface of the country should be transformed into agroforestry in the next five years. In other words, nothing. Our, our Czech colleagues, the Czech Agroforestry Federation, has enough requests from farmers to consume the five-year resource the Czech government is planning to spend on this strategic, on the agroforestry part of the strategic plan uh, within a year. Uh, so, and that's only three farms. Three farms want to do agroforestry, and that would already consume all of the finances the Czech Republic is planning to agro um, allocate to agroforestry over the next five years within one year. That's how little 
the promotion of agroforestry is in, um, in the Czech Republic. And we see that being repeated in other countries as well. Um, ministries of agriculture are just not taking it seriously. Brussels is taking it seriously, but national ministries of agriculture are not. And that's a foundational problem. It's a fundamental problem because it means that farmers who want to transfer to agroforestry, not only are they not going to get the subsidies, but very often they're not going to get the technical advice that they need. And as we all know, agroforestry sounds beautiful, but the practice is not always easy. You need to know what tree to plant, how to plant them, how to prune them, how to fertilize them, how to water them, what distance to plant them, what the market is like, etc., 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 etc. And you need to know all that before you even start planting your very first tree. Where are farmers going to get that advice from? They're not getting it from the, the, the public advisory bodies, which are all in productive into productivist agriculture. They might get it from um, activists, from NGOs and from other farmers who are doing it. But by definition, these are A, not very numerous, and B, concentrated. Typically, when you have an agroforester somewhere, you have other agroforesters in the neighborhood. And when you don't have any agroforestry at all, you don't have any agroforestry for hundreds of kilometers. And it is in these places without any agroforestry at all, of course, that most of the heavy lifting needs to be done. And that's just not happening. We will come back uh, later on to you know, how we can try and leverage and, and scale uh, agroforestry. But first, I wanted to get a sense of uh, how things have evolved throughout your career. I mean, from what I understand, um, policymakers have been more and more, you know, uh, sensitive and, and have at the European level have started to listen. But now we're still at a, a point where we need to see like scaling it up. Uh, how, how has it changed throughout your career lobbying for agroforestry and working on it? It's been positive. Um, to caricature, 10 years ago, people would not take my calls. Today, I get the calls. I don't have to call people. Um, so there is a much greater interest now in, in these techniques than there were 10 years ago. And that's not just because of the work that, 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 that we've been doing. It's because of the work that a lot of other people have been doing. For example, I don't know if you've seen the, the latest uh, adaptation report of the IPCC. Um, I mean, these are thousands of scientists who review hundreds of thousands of papers and their conclusion on the land-based stuff is agroecology rocks. Um, agroecology is better for productivity, it's better for adaptation, it's better for resilience, it's better for biodiversity, it's better for social things. And then they have these wonderful two words between brackets, high confidence. What that means is the scientists have reviewed all of these studies and the conclusions are very, very sound. This is not, you know, daring science at the edge somewhere that may or may be proven wrong in the future, may or may not be proven wrong in the future. This is settled science, which a large community of scientists have concluded with high confidence is the way to go. Um, and, and that kind of message keeps on coming back time and time and time again. Then we also know the FAO keeps on repeating how much land degradation there is. The IPCC keeps on repeating how much how many emissions are connected to the food systems. There was a food system summit that looked at these things as well. So um, at the United Nations level. So you do have an understanding at an international policy level that business as usual, simply doubling down with better seeds and better pesticides and better fertilizers and better machinery, GPS controlled and what have you. Uh, yeah, well, it helps, but at the margins, it doesn't, it's not transformative. And right now, margins don't work anymore. If we simply do things at the margin, we're turning this planet into hell. We need complete transformation. And in the agricultural system, complete transformation does not mean replacing 
intensive agriculture with agroecology, it means adding agroecology to the toolbox. Your trees are not there to replace your tractors. Your trees are there to work with your tractors. And with a bit of luck, thanks to your trees, you'll need to spend less on fertilizer and you'll need to spend less on pesticides. And at the end, you can harvest the timber and make some extra money. That's the foundational promise of agroforestry for a farmer. But unless that message comes out and again and again and again, so that farmers actually, after a hard day's work, go on to Google to try to find out a little bit more about what that agroforestry stuff is all about, it's just not going to happen. But who is pushing back? I know you mentioned the, the agribusiness beforehand, but if the tree they're is not, not there they're, to... They're not, they're not pushing back. Mm. They don't have to worry about it. Nobody's pushing back against agroforestry. Agroforestry is... Agroforestry, agroforestry is like dieting. Everybody thinks it's a good idea and nobody does it. <laughs> you know, they, they are not, but, but they are not talking about it either. Go to a farm supply shop. What do you see? The posters, the leaflets, the brochures. They're all about the latest seed, the latest chemical, the latest machine, whatever you have. They're not about planting trees. They're not about agroecology. They're not about agroforestry. And the reason is simple to understand. If I'm in the business of making money from farmers, I can do so very easily by selling them a bag of stuff with a label about how it works and maybe add a nice app that they can have on their phone so they know exactly what to spray when for what condition. And I can package it with gorgeous marketing and everybody buys because it works. But if instead I want to teach a farmer how to plant some trees, I can't scale it. I can't run out 500,000 consultants out of a factory and send them into the landscape. I need to train individuals. These individuals need to spend time with the farmers. And because most farmers have not yet done any agroforestry, it's extremely intensive time. You need to sit down with them time and time again to discuss it, to go through their fears, to go through their hopes, to begin to figure out what the plant's going to look like, to design it, to help them plant. Who's going to pay for that? They're not going to pay for that because they're not yet convinced that this is going to make them money. The state is not paying for it because the state has basically privatized extension services, which are mostly about productivist issues. Agricultural colleges are not going to pay for it or do it because agricultural colleges are uh, in partnership with big ag, uh, are focused mostly on better seeds and better management and better pesticides and better chemicals and better machinery and more GPS and drones and tractors and robots. So who's going to do it? Nobody is doing it. That's why agroforestry doesn't spread. It's not because people hate it, it's because people ignore it. But from what I understand from what you say is that today we have a European level, which is, okay, pretty proactive, has been convinced to a certain extent. To a certain extent. To a certain it's extent, still, but certain individuals in the policy circles at least have seen the value and have tried to push yeah. that in European policy. Then we have the farm level where we have more and more farmers that are interested in, to, to try it out, your example in the Czech Republic. And the, and the level that's kind of blocking at the moment is more the state level uh, with uh, agricultural ministries that have um, privileged access for lobbies of the agro-industry. And, and I'm wondering if, if that level, the, the nation level, is the level that's blocking, um, what's missing there then? Is it that they haven't been convinced by the story? Is it that they actually are trying to block it Uh, to favor another type? Like, wh how can you, wh where they do you see the blockage? They, 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 several, at several levels. First, they don't hear the story. You need strong, proactive, vibrant, activist agroforestry federations or agroecology federations or regenerative agriculture federations inside these countries that are rich enough to pay for people to go and sit in these ministries 
regularly to prepare the stories, to prepare the brochures, to have the meetings, to organize the cocktails, to take people to dinner, to build the relationships. That's missing. That's missing almost everywhere. The second thing that's, um, that, that's necessary is the ability to analyze and take apart the work that's being done by um, the agro-industrial lobbying that ignores agroecological things. It's never about demonizing pesticides or demonizing fertilizers. These are, every farmer knows, these are tools that are extremely powerful, and I'm glad they're in the toolbox. It's about understanding that if the only thing you do is focus on those tools, you end up with the land degradation, the land erosion, the emissions, and the high debts that are bedeviling today's European farming. You have to add agroecology to that, not replace one with the other. Then it's up to every farmer to decide how wants to go, he or she wants to go down that journey. Some farmers will just be happen, happy to have monoclonal rows of poplars in their wheat fields. It's already much better than having a simple wheat field, right? It's the simplest form of agroforestry. Others will go full hog and do syntropic permaculture. Um, and that's great. It's much better. It's much more productive. It's better for the soil, blah, blah, blah. But it requires a completely different way of thinking. The first kind of farming, you do it much as you did before. You don't have to increase your labor that much. The, the, the one with the poplars. The whole syntropic permaculture thing, you can forget about using machinery and you need lots of people. It's a completely different way of farming. And that too is what a good agroforestry advisor does. And a good agroforestry advisor does not come into your farm and ask you what tree would you like to plant. A good agroforestry advisor comes into a farm and asks you, what kind of person are you? How do you like to work? Are you a loner? Poplars. Do you love having people around and do you want to have many more young people on your farm? Permaculture. Right? I'm caricaturing, but that's the kind of conversation that you need to have to help farmers develop a farm holistically that meets their purpose, not just paying down debt, because that's what most farmers are worried about now. They have bought the bullshit coming from industry. They are in debt up to here. Bigger tractors, bigger this, bigger that, more land, more, 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 more. And at the same time, less and less and less and less money coming in for the commodities that they produce. And yes, there will be a boost because of the war this year. Commodity prices are going through the roof. But we can't expect that to last. So on average, most farmers have been getting poorer and poorer and more and more into debt. And so, of course... That eats at you. The anxiety kills you. And it really does. Farmers are in Europe, the job description at the highest risk of suicide. And that is absolutely disgusting. It's us, it's society that's responsible for that. Because we don't respect our farmers, we don't pay enough for the food they produce, and we squeeze the shit out of them just to get more and more cheap crap to fill our supermarkets. So we need to change that too. That means we, the consumers, need to get better at recognizing the difference between crap and good food. We need to work with the farmers so that the good food becomes available to all social classes, not just to the highly educated rich people. We need to work with the policymakers so that they encourage the good farmers to work together with other farmers to help everybody move along in the right direction. That's, you, you know, if I'm being utopian, that's what we need. We need a a holy trinity of farmers, consumers, and governments all pushing in the same direction. We, we've looked uh, a lot at the European context, and this is our focus uh, rather than the African continent. But to get an, an idea of what that looks like in Africa today, where, where are you at then? Is the story through? Uh, what does the agroforestry landscape look like? 
more and more. What, what, what's happening in, in, in Africa, first of all, is that there is a lot more agroforestry than there is in Europe, simply because African agriculture has been undercapitalized uh, in colonial times and ever since, which means that most farmers don't have access to the kind of capital that would allow them to mechanize and, and use a lot of inputs, which means that farmers have to depend on other ways of, 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 of farming. Um, in, since independence, in many African countries, the ideal has been the intensive agriculture ideal. So the agricultural advisors that were taught in African universities were taught the same thing as they were taught in European universities. You need a clean field, get rid of all these weeds, get rid of all these shrubs and all these trees, get a nice clean field, use a tractor, irrigate, blah, 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 blah. Thankfully, Africa is poor. So there are not many agricultural advisors and there are even fewer farmers who can afford to follow that kind of advice. So that never happened. But that means that most African farmers did not get the advice they actually need, which is the advice on agroecology and how to manage their landscapes in a, in a more effective way. Um, that has begun to change. Um, I don't know the history well enough to tell you whether that started 20 years ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago, but it has begun to change. Um, and uh, it's beginning to change at the level of, um, uh, of governments. One big push in that direction has been the Paris Agreement on climate change. The Paris Agreement asks every signatory country to declare what they call their nationally determined contribution. What you're going to do at the level of your country to reduce emissions um, moving forward or to absorb carbon moving forward. So the nationally determined contributions of a place like Germany, uh, we're going to build lots of windmills and solar panels. We're also shutting down our nuclear power plants, but don't look at that, please. Um, and the nationally determined contribution for a place like Niger is going to be, we're going to be restoring a lot of landscapes. Niger does not have a lot of fossil fuel emissions. It does have a lot of degraded land. So if it restores a lot of landscapes, a lot of that carbon that's in the atmosphere is going to get back into Nigerian soils. And these nationally determined contributions some international commitments like the Africa 100 initiative, 100 million restored uh, 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 hectares of land, or the Great Green Wall of the Sahara and the Sahel, a band of trees going from uh, Senegal in the west to Djibouti in the east to separate the Sahel from the Sahara. All of these initiatives are being subscribed to by local governments and are uh, being used to promote agroforestry. How does that promotion happen in practice? Well, there's not a lot of money. It's development funding. Um, and development funding is fickle. A project, typically three to five years, never more. And trees take a long time to grow, even in the tropics. So it's hard to institutionalize what is required for agroforestry in the tropics. Um, you do have a lot of projects that are encouraging farmers to plant trees, and most of those trees dies. Most of those trees die because having planting a tree is like having a baby. It's, it's not when the job stops, it's when the job starts. Especially that young sapling is going to be fragile, you're going to need to protect it, you're going to be from animals, from drought, um, and, and that demands labor, which Africans, farmers, often don't expand. So what you typically find is that there's a lot of trees around the, the villages, those are fruit trees, but in the fields there are very, very few trees because the animals are eating the saplings. So what we need to do instead is to encourage people to work with things that demand less capital and less labor, forms of agroforestry that demand less capital and less labor, and that's regenerate, regeneration, farmer-managed natural regeneration. In, across the landscapes of Africa, you have stumps of trees that were cut down and you have seeds in the ground. Encourage these trees to regenerate. 
by pruning away the weak shoots and keeping the stronger shoots, you can rapidly get forests back because a regenerating tree grows much more quickly than a freshly planted sapling because there's a big root mass that's feeding just one little uh, uh, one little shoot as opposed to one little root feeding one little shoot. So you have faster growth. Um, by definition, you have trees that are adapted to that landscape that are coming back rather than trees that may come from a long way away, selected by somebody who doesn't understand the local climate and that will struggle. Um, so these techniques work. And in places where these techniques have been applied at scale, like Niger, they have been transformative. In Niger, we estimate that there's now about 15 million hectares of restored land with these regenerated trees, mostly a form of Acacia qualified herbia albida, which is useful because it's got a reverse phenology. It goes into dormancy in the rainy season, so it doesn't compete with the crops. Um, and, and these 15 million hectares are generating millions of tons of more cereals per year than before. Literally, because in that landscape, it's difficult to farm without the protection of trees. The rainy season is there, and you can get enough rain. You can get 600 or 800 millimeters, but you only get it for two months. And after that, for 10 months, it's dry. Um, and uh, if you don't have the trees to buffer that and, and to keep the water on the ground rather than having it run off, and to provide a little microclimate through shade, your crops are going to struggle to come to maturity. Um, so in those environments, agroforestry is beginning to work better and better. Another place where agroforestry is, 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 is spreading, but slowly, is in the humid tropics. Coffee, cocoa, rubber, that sort of thing, where consumers in the rich world are willing to pay a premium for agroforestry versions of those commodities. It's still very small, but it's growing. Would the biggest uh, tool then be access to funding then in this African context? Uh, because is the knowledge out there or what, what tools do we have to try and make this work? The, the knowledge is by and large out there with a proviso that you don't have enough advisors, you need to train them. Funding, yes, absolutely, but not funding for yet another agroforestry project. Funding to institutionalize it. Funding so that Mali or Senegal or Ethiopia or Zambia can train and support and give careers to agroforestry and agroecology advisors for the duration. That means funding that comes year after year after year for 10, 20, 30 years. Funding that is insulated from the vagaries of politics. Funding that is insulated from the vagaries of the market. Funding that is there to ensure that farmers have access to the management advice that they need. And that funding needs to be institutionalized. This has been done before. And the success can be seen across East Asia. You can compare eight countries in East Asia. In the first group, you have Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and China. In the second group, you have the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, and uh, Malaysia. Um, let me focus on Taiwan and on the Philippines. In 1960, Taiwan was poorer than Ghana. Its income per head was lower than that of Ghana. What did the Taiwanese government do? It provided free education only to one category of university students, agronomists. And only on condition that these agronomists would then agree to go and live for a minimum of four years in a village and become the agricultural advisor of those villages. What kind of education did these agronomists get? Taiwan was poor, couldn't afford tractors and fertilizers and pesticides. 
they got advice in traditional agroecological agricultural production methods. That's what they learned and that's what they told the farmers. At the same time, Taiwan had a land reform. It redistributed land belonging to big landowners and big families to smallholders. Suddenly you had a country of smallholders, three, four, five hectares each, being advised by highly trained agroecological advisors. Extremely rapidly, the product, agricultural productivity of the island exploded, went through the roof. And it focused on two commodity crops, asparagus and mushrooms, which were exported to the United States. And that was the first export success of Taiwan. And what happened to the money that came back? The money that was in the farmers' pockets? It was placed in rural credit institutions, banks. The interests paid on that were low. So the amount of capital that was accumulating in these banks was high. Who could get access to that capital? Companies that exported. How could you prove that you export? Not with the tax, uh, uh, not with a form from your own country's tax office, from the Taiwanese tax office, tax office, because you can corrupt some guy to sign that, but with a form coming from the government of the country to which you're exporting. If you have that and you can prove that you're exporting, you have access to low credit. Why did they do that? Because that means that companies were encouraged to export and they were encouraged to try their hand against other products everywhere else. You also had protectionism. Other companies could not come into Taiwan at the time. The result of that was an extraordinarily rapid development. Today, when you look out your window, you see Taiwanese-made cars everywhere. They are amongst the world's highest quality cars. The very first cars that were exported from Taiwan using this model was to Saudi Arabia in 1970 or 1971. There were 1,000 of them. Two years later, less than 200 were still on the road. The quality was so shit. But that's how you learn. That's how you learn. That's how they got credits. That's how Hyundai, that company, learned how to make better and better and better cars and is now a world beater. And that's why today Taiwan is now a company, uh, is now a country that produces 80% of the world's microchips. That's computer, that phone, your car, your washing machine, whatever you have that has a microchip in it, it's got an 80% chance of having come out of Taiwan. Now look at the Philippines. The Philippines in 1960 was richer than Taiwan. The Philippines today is the poorest of the lot. What did the Philippines do? It had very large land holding, very large land holdings belonging to a few rich families. The productivity is abysmal. Big landowners doing sugarcane or what have you. Lots of inputs, lots of machinery, very low productivity. And a lot of landless peasants. These landless peasants, if they're lucky, get a job spraying toxic chemicals and get sick in the process. If they're unlucky, they sit by the side of the road, hawking some goods, hoping not to starve. Not surprisingly, they're not happy. Not surprisingly, that leads to instability and insecurity. And in the 1970s, the farmers revolted with Mao's little red book in their hand. Today, they're revolting with the Prophet Muhammad's little green book in their hand. It's the same thing. Landless peasants lead to instability. And the Philippines is still now the poorest of the eight countries in that region. Agroecology has been shown to work. After the example of Taiwan, South Korea, Japan and China did all the same thing. When China started reforming in the late 70s, the first thing that they did was to give farmers the right to own the produce of their land and to manage their own land. And every farmer only had a few hectares. Boom! Agricultural productivity exploded. So this can work. This has worked before. 
And what I very much hope is that African governments recognize what worked in East Asia and why it worked and try to do the same thing back home. So far, <clears throat> we're not yet getting there. Um, that story is not well known enough uh, and people are not yet understanding the crucial role that land reform and agroecology played in getting these four successful countries to go from the state of rural poverty to the state of advanced industrial wealth. But now that these uh, countries like Taiwan, if you looked at its agriculture today, has it then industrialized its agriculture as it grew more wealthy and, and moved away from agroecology? It, it, it's followed the model, the European model, in the sense that um, um, you have more and more subsidies for people to, produ for people to produce rice, basically. Um, and, uh, but but it, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, Taiwan is a rich industrial country. It imports most of its food. The farming is basically people are being paid to maintain the landscape and to produce a bit of rice. Um, the farming is not relevant uh, anymore. So um, it's, in that sense, it's a bit like Europe. You have a, a farming community comprised mostly of old people because the young have gone to the cities to work in the factories. Um, and these old people are getting subsidized to stay on the land. <clears throat> But okay, so then if we take back the conversation to these industrialized countries and, and we, we, we assume that it's not good enough you know, to just produce rice or just produce wheat or whatever, and, and we go back to the idea that we need agroforestry, we need to change management even in these industrialized countries um how do you see the funding going forward then because you mentioned that in africa rather than funding individual projects we should be funding uh institutionalized bodies of course the context is vastly different in europe but my question is you know where do you see where should the funding go is it uh, only farmers or the context is not that different um farmers in africa and in europe want the same thing they want some resilience they want some stability and they want a higher income Farmers in Africa and in Europe are being overwhelmed with the same pro-intensive agriculture messages. By this, by that, you'll, get a better, you'll become a better farmer. Farmers in Africa and in Europe both lack quality advice. Farmers in Africa and Europe, neither farmers in Africa nor farmers in Europe, have access to good pro-agroforestry, pro-agroecology, pro-regenerative agriculture institutions. So the context is very similar. The amount of wealth we have in Europe is, of course, much, much higher. Um, and, and what I would do with, with, with that wealth is, again, institutionalize it. If we cannot convince member states to do so, and to my knowledge, France is the only country in Europe that actually did try to do that under a former agriculture ministry named Stéphane Le Foll. Um, it launched a 4 per thousand initiative to put carbon in the soil. Um, it put money on the table to train agroecology and agroforestry advisors to ensure that agroforestry was part of the curriculum in agricultural colleges. Um, I don't know how far that has gone and if that is continuing, but at least it moved in the right direction. But it's the only state in Europe to have done that. And that's what's needed everywhere. So we can only do, we, we, we need to do two things at the same time. First, we need to become much, much better at telling the story to our national governments that this is an essential tool in the agricultural toolbox. And the second thing that we need to do is to get much, much better at explaining to foundations or funding bodies or rich individuals that they need to fund the institutionalization of agroforestry and agroecology advice. Another thing that we need to do is to stop dividing ourselves into lots of little boxes. Agroecology, agroforestry, 
syntropic agriculture, silver arable, silver pastoral, holistic grazing, farming God's way, organic, blah, blah, blah. There's a dozens upon dozens upon dozens of labels that all mean the same thing. Mix things up, include trees, and think before you spray. That's what they all mean, right? But they are all these different words because this one is a little bit different from that one, and this one we use the trees in this way, and this one, fuck it. Why the hell do we need to have that complexity? Industrial agriculture, petrochemical agriculture has understood that. That's why they talk about conventional agriculture. And it doesn't matter whether you're growing wheat or oil palm or chickens or beef. It's conventional agriculture, which means lots of machinery, lots of capital, lots of expensive inputs. They always call it conventional, no matter what it is. They even call it traditional. And that shocks me. There is nothing traditional about petrochemical agriculture. It didn't exist 70 years ago. It's a product of modernity. Traditional agriculture is what we do. It's what the regenerators do. It's what the agroecologists do. It's what the agroforesters do. So what we need to do is to get much better at the vocabulary as well. We are traditional agriculture. They are petrochemical agriculture. And in terms of this funding, um... Do you see then, you mentioned foundations, you mentioned other bodies than public bodies, and that was one of my questions. <clears throat> Which role do you see for uh, private companies, for uh, other sources of funding? And I'm thinking uh, at the moment we're talking a lot about carbon credits, for example, or payment for ecosystem services that also sometimes can be controversial on some levels. And uh, where do you see the future of this? Because we've, we've obviously seen how difficult it is to change this massive mammoth that the cap is and European policy is in general. So do you see it more promising to try and, I mean, bypass it? You can't bypass it because it's the reality of farmers. But I mean, to kind of sidestep it and try and, and take things forward with uh, companies or other types of actors? Or how do you see this strategy? The interest in carbon is immense. There's a wall of money flooding across the landscape. Everybody's looking for high quality carbon. And people are recognizing that there's only so many pristine rainforests you can save by pumping money into them. So you need to plant trees in other environments. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of that money is going to tree plantations. Not a great idea. Um, but a lot of it is trying to go into agroforestry. Much better idea. Um, but that money is facing the same kind of problem that, that we've just described. Um, it's happy to reward farmers who do agroforestry. But it doesn't understand that it first has to pay for the technical assistance to convince those farmers to try agroforestry. So th these, th th these funds very often are just looking for existing projects that they can top up. In effect, they're parasites. They want somebody else to pay for the technical advice, somebody else to help the farmers do the difficult job of deciding to do agroforestry, and then they will reward the farmers Sorry, that's not business. That's just parasitism. People who want to do it right, carbon funders who want to do it right, and they exist, know that they have to roll up their shirt sleeves, they have to go into the landscape, they have to help the farmers adapt, and that is not going to be cheap and it's not going to be fast, but it is going to be very high-quality carbon. And so, again, it goes back to this idea of like going to find partners on a national level and funding them, funding networks, funding technicians, uh, funding the professionals that can then bring this transition forward rather than looking for uh, lonely pioneers and saying we helped plant X amount of trees. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, if you want to change the world, you need people to change it. It's as simple mm. as that. Um, especially when the solution is not an app or something you buy in a bag, but something that consists of advice. One of my questions, but I, th I think we've answered it a bit, is, you know, what's the next step for the European agro, uh, agroforestry movement? You've talked about telling a story. I don't know if there's something more to add um, or on the funding aspect, if mm -hmm. anything comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, th th the story is like a key that opens the lock to a door, right? And once the door is open, you have the room behind it. And the room behind it is the empty brain box of the person you try to convince. And you need to, you, you need to furnish that room. And uh, you, you need to add reasons to believe. And that's when the data comes in. That's where the experiments comes in. That's where the testimonials from successful farmers comes in, right? Um, once you do that, once you have that, then you have an ally. And then you have to understand how to use that ally. Can that ally help you change policy? Or can that help, ally help you get the right funding stream in place? Or if you're lucky, as in France with Stéphane Le Fort, can that ally actually begin to change the way the whole agricultural education and advice machinery of a major member state operates, right? But Stéphane Le Fort was also convinced by a story originally, and then he educated himself. He's a clever man, and he found that this was more than just a story. And that's how you have to work. So what is the future for European agroforestry? First, European agroforestry is becoming professionalized. We were founded over 10 years ago, EURF, and so far it's been exclusively run by volunteers. There's a board, there's an executive committee, each and every one of us is doing it on top of our day job. But we are hiring a secretary general with a bit of luck that secretary general will be in, will be in place uh, from uh, August or September onwards with an office in Brussels. Uh, we'll be hiring, uh, hopefully, a, a full-time lobbyist to support that secretary general. And uh, so we will have a voice that's going to be stronger simply because it is going to be a little bit institutionalized and professionalized. The more difficult thing, but the more important thing, in my view, will be for the next um, board of the European Agroforestry Federation to focus on how we can help individual national federations become better national lobbyists. We need the Hungarians and the Romanians and the Swedes and the, the Irish and the Spanish and what have you to become better at lobbying their own ministries of agriculture and their own national governments to ensure that agroecological options like agroforestry are integrated into the agricultural development plans. And we need to do it now. Uh, we have a tendency of putting enormous hopes in new common agricultural policy proposals. And then when they come out and the inevitable disappointment comes in, we have a tendency of laying down our weapons and saying, oh, well, at least we tried. Let's wait for the next one in five years' time and let's do it again. Well, we've been doing that for 15 years. It's not done a lot of change. Uh, we need to get better at, at lobbying on an ongoing basis. And with the strategic plans, we actually have that possibility, right? Yes, the strategic plans are bloody awful, but they can be adapted year after year after year. And if we create a coalition of farmers that want it, of academics and activists that say, guys, this is a no-brainer. You've got to do agroforestry. It's got to be part of the toolkit. Then maybe we can shift the needle a little bit in the member states. And that's going to become, but that's more complicated. It doesn't happen in English or even in French. It happens in Slovene or Croat or, or Romansh or Finnish. Um, and, It happens in cultures that we don't necessarily know. It happens in languages that we don't know. And it has to be done 27 different times, not just once. So it's a lot more expensive and a lot more complicated. 
And figuring out how to make that happen, figuring out how to get that funded is going to be crucial in, in the future of European agroforestry. And um, today you have, because what's, what I find interesting is that Dimitri and I started the podcast from the totally different perspective of what you're saying is that we heard the story and then faced with the difficulties, we're like, okay, well, let's try and actually figure this out on the ground. And uh, we often talk about, you know, we often start from the assumption, okay, we, we know the big picture, we know how amazing it is, uh, but we, we are always faced with those technical difficulties. Yeah. But today, um, when you, when you, talk about agroforestry you have all the successful examples you need then to to illustrate that today the limiting factor is getting that story outside it's not yeah. the technical kind of yeah to a large level. that's true to a large extent with one proviso it's remarkably difficult to get good data on the economic benefits of agroforestry and the reason for that is that so much of the economic benefits depend on the total income including the timber of the trees at the end of their rotation and uh, even short rotation to trees like poplars, it's 15, 18 years before you start seeing any income. So, um, and no research project lasts that long. So there's remarkably little research that has simply totted up the expenses and the outgoings for an agroforestry system from beginning to end. Um, and that's um, uh, um, difficult because farmers are interested in income and we, we cannot give them here. Here's a farm that's been doing it for 50 years. Here's the incomings, outgoings, Here's how the debt has gone down and here's how the profits have gone up. We, we have remarkable difficulty doing that. The only place where we can do that is in places that have traditional agroforestry systems, like the Dehezas or the Montados in Iberia, where, which are silver pastoral systems with a variety of livestock grazing under, on, under oaks, including the iconic cork oak. Those, in, those systems have been in operation for a very long time. Um, the farmers who are using those systems have uh, uh, climbed up the food chain um, to provide uh, uh, extremely valuable, um, extremely highly rewarded meats to uh, the, the top end, the luxury market. Think of Pata Negra Ham, for example, or in Hungary, Mangalitsa pork. Um, and, and in these environments, you can, uh, you, you, you can study the, the incomes and the outgoings, and you know, it works. I mean, and, and, and sometimes you have, it's anecdotal, but sometimes you have examples like uh, this place I know of in, in Portugal, um, an aristocratic family that got its land back uh, uh, um, after the socialists uh, lost power. Uh, two brothers, 450 hectares each. Uh, one followed the advice of the agronomists, got rid of all his trees, put a wheat plantation um, in place, worked well for a couple of decades. Now, not so much. Uh, the other one, gregarious, liked people, kept his Montado system and invited young people to come and try different kinds of farming, horticulture and olives and, 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 and chickens and what have you on there, saying that they didn't have to pay any rent for the first five years. And after that, they would split the profits. The first brother is now living alone on his farm. You don't need many people to manage 450 hectares of wheat. You can do it with machinery. Um, he's depressed. His wife has left him. Uh, the other farmer, he's got 20, 25 families living on his land. It's surrounded by children and kids. And, and families, uh, the landscape is thriving. There's water, there's animals, there's wildlife. There's a lot of pigs, a lot of cattle, and a lot of sheep, um, and a lot of happy people. I mean, it's obvious which system is better, right? It's just obvious, but it's rare that you see this side-by-side -side comparison like that. And especially what we found difficult is, um, you know, when you talk to scientists, often they 
their science uh, scientific studies are on a very specific topic at a very specific time frame. So it's very hard uh, to get them to extrapolate or make bigger statements or tendencies because that's a bit against their scientific mind, you know. So we've been trying to, to get those scientists on the show and also f trying to talk to farmers. And it, it is interesting because you we've talked to dozens of people and we have had very interesting conversations But it, it's, it is difficult to, to sit a farmer down and tell him, like, what exactly have you observed or what, what can you really put a number on it? Can you really, you know, quantify it? That's very difficult. Yeah. Um, and I, I was just wondering if that was a challenge in terms of actually then pushing that story forward on the policy level or if at the end of the day you already have all the data you need because you have a, a, a bigger uh, maybe sample of studies you can rest yourself upon. Well, I As I said, on the um, on the financial side, we simply don't have enough data, right? We need more. We need more data on the biophysics, the social side. We do have enough data, but on the um, on, on the finance side, we don't have enough data. We have good anecdotes, but we don't. But the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, to get back to this idea that, that that scientists don't want to be drawn, that's they are scientists. Their job is not to lobby for A or B. Their job is to find out how A or B works, and uh, uh, at most to compare them, and. To do the papers, so they're, they're the wrong person to ask uh, for these big sweeping statements. That's why I, that's why World Agroforestry, a scientific research organization, hired somebody like me. I am not a practicing scientist. I am a storyteller. That's what I do. Um, and they figured they needed somebody like me on top of all of the science to explain the science better, to help the science get into the right policy circles, to help the science get into the right donor circles. So we need both. We need both. We need an alliance of these, these different skill sets. We need clever farmers who are doing it well and who can show their farms to others. We need the scientists who can measure how well these systems work and how badly the other systems work. We need the storytellers who can package all that and put it out there and help people understand how important it is. And you, Etienne, with your podcast, you're, you're a classical storyteller. I mean, you're, you're actually getting lots of people to tell those stories. And as I understand it, you have more and more listeners on your, uh, on your podcast. So it's great. We need more like you. We need more people to tell the story of regeneration. Finally, and that's utopian again, we need a little bit of education at the level of the schools. Right? Kids have no idea where their food comes from. They don't know what nature is. I'm sure we've all had that experience, our city-based friends, Say, oh, I had a great weekend. I went walking in the countryside. It was wonderful to be in pure nature. And you ask them where they went. And when you then look at a map, they were in an intensively farmed agricultural areas just after they sprayed loads of pesticides. Mm, not so natural. Um, so people don't understand the difference between a high-functioning ecosystem and a non-functioning ecosystem. And I think that this, this love of complexity, this biophilia, this love of... Uh, love of, uh, of, of farming systems that combine things is something that kids have from very small onwards. Three, four, five-year-olds, when they picture a farm, they picture an apple tree and a cow and, and, a, and a goat and a pig and a happy farm. They picture what is, in effect, a smallholder farm. And when they grow up, they forget that because nobody's encouraged them to think that this is important. And they think it's perfectly normal to have these giant farms of 5,000 hectares that are producing one commodity only while destroying the land. Um, so we need to encourage that love of complexity as kids grow up. We need to encourage them to be able to recognize when they walk in the countryside, this is a well-managed farm, this is a badly managed farm. 
this is good land, this is bad land. And that's something that disappears as people move to cities. But it's utopian to expect the educational systems of all of Europe to start taking these issues on board sensibly and consequently. So, Patrick, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to answer to these questions today and giving us your perspective. You're welcome. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the episodes until the end. As usual, all the links will be included in the description. Please feel free to reach out to us with any suggestions or questions. And if you can, consider supporting the podcast to make this sustainable in the long run. Thank you.